Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. Remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you, I have a co-host today. I have a dog. A dog is co-hosting with me, which the dog is a very cute dog, much better looking than me. And the dog is probably more entertaining than me. So if you hear a bark during the session, that's the dog taking over, inter- intercepting me. But that's all I'm going to say. Anyway, I have a bunch of friends in the studio. I have my friend JP Welgus. I have Jose de Jesus, whose wife makes the guest, best Puerto Rican food. I went to this party. I had these Puerto Rican... Uh, I guess they're tamales. So what are they called? We call them pasteles. Pasteles. And oh my God, I sat there. And you know I have to watch the sodium because my heart problem. But man, I walked home. I think the lovely Joanne actually pushed me home because I was about to die from my heart problems. But it was all good. I had so much salt because it's one thing, Latinos, salt, it's 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 like Latinos and, and you know, immigration. It's the same thing. Anyway, we have a great show. Uh, we have a, you know, when I was in college, I, I used to, I, I lived in H dorm at Richard Stockton College. Now it's Stockton University. And my friends Stuart Rosenthal and Frank Toriello had, and this guy, crazy guy named Eli used to sit there and they, they used to play punk rock. And before we, 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 we were all Springsteen kids, Journey kids, Steve Miller kids. And they played, and I remember the shit hits the fan was on a cassette my friend gave me years later. And it was a group by the Circle Jerks. And Lucky Lara is my, my guest, the drummer from the Circle Jerks. Hey, how you doing? How you doing, man? All golden. So 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 you as a kid, you always wanted to play music. Yes. Yes. Started real early with the drums, like uh, eight years old. And so you just what what made you gravitate towards getting the drums? I think the drums call to you more than uh, you look at the drums and say, oh, that looks cool. It's something that... Uh, almost can defy description. It pulls you in. There's a fascination. I remember at the music store looking at the drums as a you know young kid and just enthralled and uh, just drawn in. It's a tribal thing. It's a it's an instrument that uh, you know dates back thousands of years and you know, all kinds of uh, elements to it. Religious communication touches your heart. Uh, rhythm beat. It's an amazing, uh, amazing avocation. Now, your mom was a very big advocate to your drumming. She loved it. Right. So, 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 how did that? How, how do you think that came from? Just because she loved music, or what was that? Well, she that side of the family is all uh, you know very musical, and uh, other people in that family have won Grammy awards and done all kinds of amazing uh, things in music. Not uh, in more conventional instruments and more um, mainstream styles of music, but uh, there's a, a strain of about four or five cousins that have all uh, reached certain levels of achievement with music. So your mom would take you to shows, so I know, when you were a kid, and then did, did that influence your music Hugely, style? hugely. And when they saw that I uh, loved the drums, they would choose shows that uh, featured drummers. So uh, back in the day, here in the Valley, there were jazz clubs, and you know saw Buddy Rich and Louis Belson play, and uh, Shelly Mann and a bunch of other hip uh, jazz virtuoso soloist drummers. And of course, I was like a thrill and an influence. Now, is it true Buddy Rich told you to get away from him? Is, 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 well, is, that, is that a made up story? No, there's a billion Buddy Rich stories out there. And uh, I got a chance about uh, a year ago to meet Buddy's grandson, Nick. And I did a show with him uh, on the Hardcore Drum Hour on uh, DW's. Uh, separate drum channel. Uh, so it's been a thrill getting to know uh, Nick and uh, Buddy's daughter, Kathy, uh, who's kept the uh, Buddy Rich uh, legend alive through the Buddy Rich band, which uh, Greg Potter now plays drums in that orchestra. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Buddy Rich stories, that was, that was very typical of uh, Buddy. He didn't mince words. And uh, of course, I was a little, you know, kid. I couldn't uh, sit close enough. And uh, he had a he spoke what was on his mind. Let's put it that way. And he told you to get the hell out. Well, you're, you're too close, kid. Get out of here. <laughs> but now you started playing guitar, though. That that fiasco lasted only about six weeks, and I couldn't stand it. I didn't like practicing. I didn't enjoy it, and so uh, it was kind of a note to self because I never uh, said to myself, "Well, now it's time to practice the drums." It was never a chore. It was never anything that I really had to do. It was uh, something I always loved to do. It's so funny about drummers because I remember my brother had a uh, Ludwig kit with the Zildjian cymbals. And I remember it, we put it in the basement 
and if you put it on the floor, because our mm -hmm. basement flooded, because all basements in New Jersey flood, so my parents took down the ping pong table to leave it as a platform, and I was always pissed off at my brother because I couldn't play fucking ping pong because his drums were up there. What was your first kit? Well, in those days, uh, I'm dating myself, of course, but uh, the most inexpensive products in those days came from Japan. So it's a bit of a misnomer because now Japanese drum sets like uh, Mapex and Tama are, are great brands. But uh, in those days, the cheapest you could get was uh, a Japanese drum set. And uh, I think the brand was Stingray, which is just some non-existent name. Uh, it was Blue Sparkle, which was thrilling. But beyond that, it was uh, pretty much a disaster of a kit. Uh, it took a lot of savings to finally, uh, after four or five years with that, uh, get my first uh, Ludwig drum set. I got it in the valley. Uh, it was an absolutely like a dream come true. It was uh, a, an off-brand that they were manufacturing for a short period of time called uh, Standard Line, which was an effort to compete with low-priced imported drums. But it was basically the same Ludwig shells with less expensive hardware, but with some real youthful, hip, super cool colors to attract young kids. And uh, it was a dream come true. So you're playing the drums. And now, when you get in high school, do you sit there and go, because I know now you're a lawyer. So so you're an intelligent guy. And, I, and there's been a, a, a thing that just came out. Everyone always said drummers were crazy. But there's actually a, uh, a study came out that said drummers are the most intelligent people in bands. And bassists are the most boring. No offense, but uh, but no. So so you're in high school. Did we you know singers are the singers are the biggest pain. That okay. I can tell you. Why are singers the biggest pain? Uh, that's just a universal uh, thing that uh, it's like a unwritten law that seems to never be un uh, never defied. <laughs> so you're in high school. Do you decide you want to go into a band or, or do you want to go to college or what do you want to do? Uh, constantly trying to ride, uh, you know, head head on a couple pillows. And uh, we were fortunate in those days because the school system, even though it was a public school system, was a decent in situation here in L.A. And uh, ironically, not far from where we're sitting, uh, the music teacher on Wednesday nights would hold uh, his own band, which was a, a big, about a 20-some-odd piece uh, straight-ahead jazz band. And uh, by the time we turned 16, or some of us were 16, we could jump in the car and drive over to his house and watch the band play. And then on Thursday mornings, he would bring the charts to the uh, back to school, and we would take a shot at some of those uh, charts. This, these were bands that were oriented like the NBC Orchestra. Some of the guys were cross-pollinating playing in those type of bands. Big swing bands, straight-ahead, fast jazz, uh, up-tempo jazz, and uh, great instruction and a great exposure to that style. And uh, so I always wanted to do both. Uh, I guess it was a form of risk management to uh, get an education at the same time. And it's something that I uh, often encourage young drummers to, you know, not just base everything on the drums, but also to keep their options open so that they can uh, you know, have, have other things to do and fall back on. And that was my approach. Um, so I, I kind of continue with that uh, through college. I played in the college jazz band. Again, that was a, a good enriching experience, exposure to a lot of different kinds of music. And... Uh, then lo and behold, uh, come back uh, after college, uh, graduated. I went to Cal Berkeley, graduated early. So there was about about nine or ten months between graduating college and before I uh, sort of law school. And so during that time, uh, I got a job in Beverly Hills at a big litigation law firm as a paralegal. And uh, waiting for law school to start with a bunch of extra time, uh, and my brother Chet, uh, played guitar and he was buying and selling stuff before eBay. There was a newspaper called The Recycler where people right. bought and sold equipment. He told this guy that he had either bought or sold an amp from that uh, his brother was coming down from college. He was a good drummer and uh, turned out that was Greg Hetson who was in the Circle of Jerks. Uh, but at that time, Greg was in Red Cross. So Greg got me in an audition because the drummer from Red Cross had either quit or gotten thrown out. So I was pretty excited. It's like, here's an established band. Back in my mind, I'm always motivated uh, by the spotlight and the chance to meet females uh, at gigs because it certainly wasn't for the money. You know, it's funny. You always say that. It's so, I've, I've had so many actors come on the show. The same thing. They always go, I played sports, but then, and they're over 50 and they're like, but back then, no guys took drama. 
all the chicks took drama. And it always gravitates back to the ladies. Oh, it's a big thing. The ladies are the key. So I'm in Red Cross or I go to audition. Uh, I'm coming down from the Bay Area. I've been in a sort of a, a punk new wave band. So I've got some ex- experience with that and I like it. Uh, and of course, the college jazz band because I was a music minor. So uh, they take one look at me and they take a look at the drum set. It's kind of new wave because I, I, you know, the whole concept was just still gelling, and I didn't realize uh, there was a sort of a code of conduct in LA punk, and uh, maybe it was the Devo pin that was uh, on my jacket or something. But they took one look at me and they weren't really interested. But Greg saw something that he liked. So uh, a day or two later, he, Greg calls and says, "Good news, bad news." Uh, Bad news, they don't like you. They think you're kind of new wavy. But uh, good news, uh, I think they're idiots and I'm quitting. I'm like, okay, well, I kind of like the idea of being in an established band. So now we're starting from square one. He goes, yeah, we're starting from square one. But um, by coincidence, this guy named Keith Morris just quit Black Flag. I go, okay, I've heard of him. So a week later, Again, we keep coming back to the valley. All these are valley stories. Another two or three miles from here is a studio called Stone Fox. The valley is the king of L.A. It's, I don't care what people say, Burbank, the whole world revolves around us. Yeah, because there was a studio that the Dickies rehearsed in called Stone Fox. It's the last time I think everyone had to pay $8, and that bought us about two hours' time. I don't think we ever bought studio time ever again, but uh, – $8 each, which was probably digging deep into some of uh, the other guy's pockets. But we get together. I think we like warmed up like on a Sex Pistols song because we really had never met each other, like loosen up a little bit. And but had, had, had you liked punk before that? Because it was it was so early in punk. I mean, yeah. we're talking like 1979, 79, yeah. 79. Yeah. So, so punk wasn't really relevant. Like people didn't know that. I mean, what drew you to punk and what drew you wanting to play it? Great question. Well, two things had happened, or confluence of three things, perhaps. One, during the summers when I wasn't up at Berkeley, I'd come down to LA and I found out that some friends of mine had gotten into punk bands. And these were people that I had played in high school bands with. Example, Paul Rossler. He and I were in a high school band and he was in the Screamers. So I went to go check them out at the Whiskey. And so that was a huge eye-opening thing. In those days at the Whiskey, they would have a matinee show on Sunday afternoons that was for punk to show you how you know tentative it was. And that, that's kind of a good point for the interview. A lot of the quote-unquote established music industry was very tentative about punk. The whiskey would only give it a Sunday afternoon. The radio stations wouldn't touch it. The record labels had no interest at all, with the exception of A&M, which put out something called a new wave sampler that had like uh, 12 bands uh, on one LP, including the Dickies and the Police. But New Wave was a lot different than punk. Right, right. But uh, somehow the Dickies made their way onto that, along with the Go-Go's, uh, onto that sampler. So I was kind of hip to that. At the same time, up at Cal, uh, there was uh, some – people were aware of it. And uh, I was one day kind of milling around uh, and saw some pretty crazy-looking chicks about to jump on a bus uh, – and, and go to watch the Sex Pistols play at Fillmore West. And I kind of caught up with my study and nothing else to do. And I'm like, hey, where are you guys going? Oh, we're going to see the Sex Pistols. I said, well, okay, I'll come along. I go, not dressed like that. I probably had like my blue and gold Cal <laughs> t-shirt on. The khakis so, and the right. polo shirt. <laughs> so I just turned the shirt inside out. You know, so now I no longer said anything. It's kind of like a rugby looking shirt. Uh, checked out the show. Pretty much. You know, once again, I, I mean, I knew I wasn't – I was trying to make it like meet gals at the like disco scene because that was kind of raging at the time too, like that whole John Travolta Saturday Night Live thing. And I was going down in flames in that world, you know, like what, what do you do? Uh, do, do you want to have a drink? high? And it was like not happening at all. I mean I don't have that uh, John Travolta look or I wasn't rocking it at all. So uh, these punk chicks were kind of like exotic, crazy, nutty-looking, blue hair, safety pins. But it's like, you know what? Uh, pour enough alcohol in, into one of these chicks, I might be able to get somewhere. So I check out the show. It was crazy, but I was kind of an adherent and then formed a band up there. So now I'm back in L.A. and I'm with uh, Greg Keith and we they found a guy named Roger back at the studio, Stone Fox. And after loosening up with... Um, uh, some Sex Pistols tunes, uh, we write this song back against the wall. I-, I was influenced going back to that sampler by the song Roxanne by the police, and that's got that amazing Stuart 
uh, Copeland reggae beat, which I still uh, marvel at. I th- and I, uh, my background was or orientation besides jazz was with Latin drumming. So I thought, well, what if I pull in a sort of a basic rock Latin beat that somehow uh, came to me? And uh, I think Roger and Greg just started playing along. And I mean, I not to pat ourselves on the back, but I really liked that song, Back Against the Wall, that we came up with. And we looked at each other. If we could write a song like this, like within 10 minutes of meeting each other, you know, we should stick with this for a little while and let now, this roll. Now, how did you find, because punk is a very fast drum style. I mean, how did you... Because a jazz background, jazz is very laid back. Like, how how did you convey that? Did you say I want to drum like that, or did they sit there and go, "Lucky, you got to drum like that"? No, that uh, that wasn't. They're not so distant cousins as you might think. Because uh, a couple things. One, uh, going back, I'm kind of bouncing around as far as time. But if I if I go back to like 11 years old, I got like a cassette stereo for my uh, Christmas and. Um, a drum teacher let me borrow Buddy Rich Big Swing Face that's the name of the album and that's anything but uh, slow tempo jazz and that was the thing that really turned me on I mean Buddy is playing at real fast tempo and it's real exciting enough to capture the uh, and, and thrill and excite an 11 year old so uh, ironically I wasn't even hip to John Bonham and Zeppelin I mean I knew of it I had Led Zeppelin 3 I liked the drum the bass drum line of Immigrant Song but I was really more obsessed with uh that kind of speed jazz and that laid the foundation so going back to the new wave sampler that clear LP that A&M released when I heard the Dickies particularly their song called Give It Back which is a super up tempo song I was really uh hip and ready to play at fast speeds. Now, you guys sit there and you start the circle drugs, which, how'd you get the name? I know you hated the first name. I, the first name they picked was Bedwetters, and it just didn't, uh, I, I just kept getting this uh, image of like- uh, You can't like be a, a badass with the name Bedwetters. It's yeah, like, it was something about it. I mean, uh, fortunately, it wasn't like it struck a, a negative nerve with me. I, I was you know, potty trained early, but- um, I just didn't dig the name. So uh, I said to them, I would virtually take any name, you know, compared to the bedwetters. And I wasn't there when Keith Morris had this uh, slang dictionary and Roger opened it and he stuck his finger in like one of the, any page, circle jerk. Okay. I said, whatever that is, that's great. I like that. Uh <laughs> Six months later, somebody says, hey, do you know what a circle jerk is? And they, like, you, they throw Oreos when you're yeah. on stage. Yeah. I, I thought it was like a soda jerk, right, from that West Side Story. Isn't that – like uh, – anyway. So it was embarrassing, you know, but, uh, you know, we roll with it. What was the scene like? Because you guys you guys were – basically, you were in the forefront of punk. I mean, and you were – when punk started getting big. I remember going, like, listening to the Sex Pistols in, like, 83 – and, you know, but you guys were around in 79. What was that like when the punk scene started out? Was it, I mean, you said there was the early shows, the whiskey, but what was, how did people accept that? I mean, did people just think it was different? Because it was such used to rock and roll, the the long songs, Moby Dick, drum solo, Moby Dick, hey, eight and a half minutes, you know, whole side of Led Zeppelin live. You're doing one and a half minute songs. How did people take that at first? Well, it brings a conversation full circle because there was a simultaneous alternative situation occurring in L.A. in Dogtown with the uh, skaters. And these guys uh, were also breaking boundaries and doing their own thing. Uh, in the old days, if you went to a skateboard show, it was basically a guy doing a handstand on a skateboard. And uh, in the winter, when it wasn't surfing uh, th- these guys were surfing at P.O.P., which was a like a Coney Island that had gotten torn down because the rides were too insane. And it was basically a derelict, decrepit thing with a bunch of phone poles sticking out of the ocean. And these nutheads were surfing in between these as if it was a ski slalom. But in the winter, they would take their same uh, tricks and daredevil tactics into swimming pools, empty swimming pools. And... Uh, they needed uh, or they gravitated toward a style of music that was uh, copacetic with their uh, leading edge sort of over the top skateboard maneuvering. And when a couple of them found their way to punk, I'm sure a bunch of them were kind of like, what? This is like not what? Yeah. But 
the leaders, guys like Tony Alva, that were so influential to these guys, said, no, this this stuff rocks, man. This is the crazy stuff that we could skate to. So there was a marriage between punk music and uh, L.A., Dogtown skateboarding that created a lifestyle that, uh, going back to the first story, obviously my, my North drums, which are these horn-shaped drums, and my Devo pin and my Mazda RX-7 didn't fit any of that. So I dropped all that and oriented myself towards the more hardcore style of playing and uh, the beats and the whole, you know, style of, of, of that aggressive Orange County influenced punk. So you start, so you get into that scene and then you, you have to take it national and you have to get a record deal. Because it was such a not known music style, really, except for the skating and the skate culture can only buy, what, a few hundred... 200 cassettes that you guys probably made the cassettes but someone made a great picture where do you go from there how do you sit there and go we we, we have to market ourselves or do people come to you and say this stuff is great the scene then as is today is a d d uh, what do they call it do it yourself dyi scene so like even our logo a fan handed us that uh, the way the words are written, the letters of the of the Circle Jerk logo, the the Skank Man, which is another important uh, part of what helps people remember a band. That was just a, another fan. Like uh, no one expected anything. No one said, "Give me five hundred dollars." I created this, or let's let's get a let's hire a, a a focus group and create a logo. It was all uh, came out of the. The heart, the mind, the enthusiasm, the passion is the word I want of, of fans that heard the music that would create this stuff. And uh, the record the record deal itself was uh, a pretty hysterical situation because uh, I could see the band was popular. But as I had intimated, none of the record labels were touching this stuff with very, very small exception. I had a buddy of mine from back in the day. He was uh, made a little bit of money. Uh, dealing in some you know illicit things but we were uh high school pals and uh i said you know i'm in this band now and it's pretty popular and i bet you you know if we put out a an lp or whatever i'm sure it would sell because even uh well even to cross lines and change topics just a little bit even motley crew had to put out their first record okay. on their by themselves uh but x had put out their own album or their own uh ep First on their on the you know in a small label and Black Flag the nervous gen uh, nervous breakdown it was a small label uh, situation and so there was this whole again do it yourself mentality. We got into the studio. I think my buddy got us like uh, six or seven hours of studio time, which included the time to mix down for like a pound of like uh, really bad uh, Mexican marijuana, and you know so now we're in the studio. By good fortune, going back to the original plan, now there were females, you know, around and happening. And two of the cutest ones I dragged into the studio. And so even though we were exhausted, you know, like, okay, red tape, uh, let's take five. And my arms are falling off at this point. But having those babes, like looking through the glass and seeing them in the record, you know, in the control room was like a, a shot of adrenaline. So uh, we created like within six or seven hours, uh, Again, not to sound self-congratulating, but a pretty legendary uh, LP, even though it's 16 minutes, whatever you want to – it's EP, let's say, uh, of 16 songs in 16 minutes, something ridiculous, but a very, very action-packed. All the songs sound different. And we even wrote a song in the studio just because those girls were there right. called Group Sex, and that turned out to be the name did, of the track. Did you get some Group Sex? Uh, not did you with them. Oh, we hooked up with them. Yeah. Oh, God. So they loved it. See, oh, so it was worth it. Legendary. A minute song. See, that's all it takes, people, is a minute song and you can get laid. You know, these people do five minute, eight minute, ten minute songs. Screw that. Do a minute song. Play the drums for a minute. You're going to get ass. That's it. That's all you need it's to do. Simple. So, so what is it like, though, playing drums so dynamically fast and for such a short time? I mean, is it in a concert setting, it must be very tiring because i always i always think drummers have this that talent where they can do the pedal and this and i go drummers have a shitload of talent like if i, I look like a palsy playing the drums i'm like my brother and i'm sitting there uh, you know but for you 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 and you've been you've been named the, the best punk rock drummer ever by a few magazines what is it what is it like just because you, you're just you're kicking ass for a minute or two minutes then it stops and then you gotta start again what is that like in in, in your mind how do you get into that 
push, 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 stop, push, push, push. Uh, if you would have asked me this question last week, I would have given you a brilliant answer. But I'm super done on myself because I completely screwed up that that uh, exact situation last Wednesday. So uh, I'm kind of in a, a depression because up until that point, I had never made a blunder like I made last Wednesday. What what blunder did you make? Well, uh, it's a, uh, one thing I can plug is there's an amazing event on Wednesday nights at Lucky Strike Live. No connection to my name. It's a bowling alley. And uh, about 50 or some odd musicians uh, do this ultimate jam on Wednesday nights. And I've been fortunate enough to be included in that. And uh, it's interesting because uh, I've gotten pigeonholed or, or classified as a punk drummer, which I'm not too happy about as much as I'm thankful. It's a sort of a duality. Because uh, uh, when I first got started playing there, I was playing some ACDC and whatnot, even though that's uh, – a little bit slow for my taste, uh, I was looking to play it note for note because I'm always looking to be a better drummer today than I was yesterday. It's a constant challenge to improve skill, get better. And uh, so I was happy to do this. And like there's 50 musicians that play on any given Wednesday night uh, from all styles of music. And saw someone sing last week from Big Brother and the Holding Company, like yeah. Janis Joplin's Seba- band. Sebastian Bach, Sebastian Bach, Bach played a few it's, weeks it's an ago. Amazing gig. It's an it's a ridiculous gig, and it's free, by the way. And you know what's amazing is me and JP went uh, Sunday because my friend Troy Patrick Farrell plays drums for Gilby Clark. Who's cool, the show. amazing. And we went in, and it, by the time it was a Margaret Festival, we were pretty hammered. And but by the time it was, uh, they went on. A lot of people left. And what's amazing is. There was people like you. I mean, there's like Rudy Sarzo, I think, played this week. Ridiculous. And and the funny thing is you sit there and you'll pay $200 to go to a concert and sit in the top goddamn level. We're sitting there right next to the stage. The security guard made us get out. And I yelled at the manager. The manager was a dick. Uh, The blonde-haired, short-haired guy is an asshole. He's making fun of Gilby Clark. But uh, mm. he was like doing a fake, eh, whatever. I tweeted him. Well, Wednesday night's the good night. But no, but it's great because what's great about it is you can see you guys and you're up close. It's like where you are right now in the studio. You can sit. You, I mean, because it, it gets a crowd. But even if you're in standing up, it's still a great show. And there are legends that show up. And that's what's awesome. And and so how did you, so so you get So sitting so close is exactly gets me to the problem. I was uh, – I had some Wednesday started off like an amazing day. It was like maybe the best day of my life. I got invited to be a part of the Bonzo Bash, which for drummers is like an elite, uh, incredible invitation to play. Brian uh, Tashi, yeah, all, guys, all this, and, yeah, yeah uh, some best drummers in the world get to play. So it's like, whoa, finally this is an amazing, fun, cool thing. Because again. Uh, Constantly looking to improve, and all of us, no matter like in the old days, we wouldn't admit this because of these, uh, like these boundaries that I talk about: new wave, punk, this and that. But now, I, without any uh, reservation, I can admit we all bow down to John Bonham, and this is an event that celebrates. Why? Why? Why, why was it him? Like not why the guy from Rush? Why was it? What made Bonham so special? And incredibly what, creative, okay. incredibly creative, supremely talented. Uh, unbelievably influential, uh, diverse, not locked into any particular thing, like not a one-trick pony, not a two-trick pony. Every song's a new set of tricks, and uh, that's why we study that and we're inspired by it. So uh, Wednesday morning, I'm in the Bonzo Bash. Now the gig's Wednesday night, and uh, normally, like driving, I'll be listening to the songs we're going to do, and the plan's to do four Ramon songs, would just you... like just like they're done on the album Loco Live, which, you know, we could do a whole segment on the Ramones. Now, who are you going to play with? Are there guys you played with before? Uh, the guys I've played with before that who I uh, respect immensely, Johnny Martin on bass, one of the best play, bass players I've ever met in my life, Ronnie Simmons, fabulous guitarist, Matt Starr's going to sing, Matt's an incredible drummer for Ace Freely and Mr. Big, but uh, he likes to sing and he's a great singer. So uh, night before we rehearse, which normally we don't, you don't need to rehearse, but we're going to do something that's a real attack. And I'm feeling a little smug because of the uh, Bonzo Bash invitation, so I'm thinking I'm like, a, you know, not top of my game, but I'm doing good. And uh, so instead of driving home and listening to all four songs that we're going to do in a row, uh, 
I do listen to something else on the radio, and then instead of like pra- what you what you listen to, I was probably listening to don't like say someone, Beyonce. Don't say Beyonce. No, not okay. Beyonce. Whatever way we're playing on K Rock, I'm just trying to like uh, loosen up or, or ease out, or maybe I was listening to Indie 100. I I don't know one of these cool stations. So uh, instead of doing my homework, and uh, instead of playing all four songs uh, when I get home. Uh, I decide to take my girlfriend out to dinner. We'll just cruise in. It's like, I got this under control. No problem. Meanwhile, uh, these Ramon songs, like there's a lot of ways to play them, but Matt says he wants to play them like they're played on local live. I figure at this point in the Ramones career, first of all, they've played these songs so many times, A, and B, there may be at that stage, I don't know what year that album was recorded, but they may have either been infatuated or inspired or responding to punk music because now they're playing their Ramones songs on that CD slash LP at like five times faster than they've ever played before. So now we're going to play these songs super fast, but to my egotistical brain, that's no problem because you know no one can play fast like me. Okay, so into the show we go, and we get through song number one. Everything's no problem. I don't want to blame it on the PA, which I think blew up, but all of a sudden I can't hear anything. Like I'm only, all I'm hearing is the drums. No, no. Are, are you wired in when you play? Or, or no, there were monitors, you... but I'm not. I'm not blaming anyone but myself for but, this. But like even in your career and early in your career, yeah. when when you're drumming, do you have something that lets you hear how you sound, or you just go by in the studio? Instead? Yes, there's headphones. In live, in live there's monitors. Those are speakers that are but next you, to you. Okay. But for some reason, I think the monitors blew up. All of a sudden, I can't, I can't hear anything. But it, again, I'm not making excuses. Somehow, between Rockaway Beach or something happened, and I thought the song was over. I, I By the way, we rehearsed it the night before. We all three played it. Well, four of us, but uh, we didn't have a singer, so it was the three of us. We played it flawlessly. Now, all of a sudden, I think the song's over, but it's not because it has one of those fake endings, that right. song, where it rock, stops. Rock, rock, maybe, and then, and then rock, they start. Rock, right. So I think, I don't know what, I, here it is three or four days later. I haven't, like, for the first two nights, I didn't sleep. It's like, why did I think the song was over? It wasn't over. They're waiting for me to hit four snare quarter notes and start the ending again. But I don't do it. So it's like, I messed the whole thing up. Uh, meanwhile, now I'm not hearing from Brian Tishy anymore. I'm probably out of the Bonzo Bash. Matt, I haven't heard from him. Was, but this, was this the second song or the last the second song? second song. So, so how did you recover? To do the next I didn't recover. Did I didn't recover. No, I didn't. I should have left. I should have left. I should have like picked up like... Uh, I don't know, a different instrument, like maybe, uh, I don't know, the kazoo, you know, just said, you know what, it's been a real fun 40 years, but this instrument is not for me. Uh, And it's like been a lot of soul searching since then. But, you know, all you can do as a drummer, and I guess we all make mistakes, all we can do is regroup, retrace our steps. How did that error occur? I, maybe when drummers make a mistake, it, maybe it's more obvious than like if a guitarist throws a clam, hits a wrong note, maybe it's not as big of a deal. Every time a drummer makes a mistake, a bassist gets laid. That's that's <laughs> that's, that's, that's the truth. It was so JP, JP got laid Wednesday night because he plays bass and thank, and JP thank Lucky because – no, okay, so – I'm gonna, confessing among 50,000 of your listeners. I mean I'm trying to – I'm trying to – I should like do some LSD or something. I've got to get out of this funk. I really Dude, messed up. Why? Dude, you, you, it's one mistake in this in this wonderful career. You yeah. know, when I did stand up comedy, I remember I remember eating crap at a show in West Virginia. I still remember a place called Bumpers, and I go to this bar and. I'm headlining. All right, great. So when you would go on the road for this crappy booking agent, you, you would headline, and then you'd have a opener who sucked and made racial jokes, and you have a feature who was awful. So I go in, and the manager goes, "Okay." Go on stage. I go, what? I go, he goes, no, you got to do, do an hour. And I go, what? And he's sitting there, and there's all these military guys, because there's a base down there, who were drinking $2 pitchers since 5 o'clock. I go on stage at 8 o'clock, and they just start yelling at me. And my friend drove from Kentucky to see me. Ten minutes into my set, I said, fuck all of you. I threw the mic down. I walked away. I told the guy, give me the money. You don't know how to run a club. And that was a bad set. I got over it. You, you're, you're a legendary drummer. 
you had one bad set at the Lucky Strike playing a Ramon song. Now, if you played a Circle Jerk song, we'd be pissed at you. But you played a Ramon song. Okay, I'm gonna get over it, Stephen. You, you've you've convinced me. I gotta let go. Yeah. So, but but you played now. You but are you gonna go back to Lucky Strike? I don't know <laughs> if they invite me again. But you know, you you played Circle Jerk songs at the Lucky we Strike. We played Circle Jerk songs. I got Greg. I convinced Greg to join us uh, uh, one or two nights, and we played some Circle Jerk songs. We've played Talking Head songs together. Uh, like I mentioned, I did ACDC. Uh, I I want to play all kinds of music. Um, I feel like uh, the drummers who I am the most inspired by, like uh, Joy Heredia was my mentor, he could play everything. I was at NAMM with Joey, and uh, all of a sudden these people from Turkey came up to him and said, I'll go, Joey, how do you know these guys from Turkey? Then there were some other people from Iran. Because I've recorded with all these people. Joey's like a phenomenal re- drummer that is known in Iran, and he doesn't know anything about Iran music. Right. But he's so good, he's better than the drummers in Iran. So when they go into the studio, they come to L.A., they get a session drummer like Joey. He could play – he blows up and rips on Iran music, Turkish music, flamenco music, jazz of any sort, rock of any ilk. He can do it. And uh, so that's – you know, what we come from, that's where our creativity comes from, is once we have the chops to play different time signatures and the chops to play in different genres of music, we can pull ideas. A lot of circle jerks, some of the basic ideas come from straight ahead jazz. The trading fours is a concept. And you see the jazz show, you see the drummer plays for a, a drum solo for four bars, then the bass player plays, then the drums do a solo, then the uh, horn player plays, and they go back and forth, they rotate. That's basically the idea of red tape. Is, is trading fours, just a simple standard jazz maneuver. So that's how we borrow, and uh, that's why influence from all different musical types is so important to a well-rounded musician. Now, I want to ask you, going back to the Circle Jerks, when you guys, you know, you were in Repo Man, your song was Repo Man, and, and your different stuff, what was it like when you guys were, I mean, you're basically the kings of American punk. I mean, you know, people like the Dead Milkman, but that song was, uh, you know, rock, punk rock girl was basically based in Philadelphia, South Street, and they were popular, and the Sex Pistols were popular, but you guys, you and I think for me in college, you and the Stranglers were big groups. What was it like when you went on the road in in those years, in the early years when punk started blowing up, what was it like being a musician on the road then? Because it's not like the heavy metal glam guys, it's punks. You said different, the girl with the blue tar- hair and stuff like that. What was it like going on the road, and did, did you get sometimes you go into places where you got a lot of resistance where people are like what the, what the fuck is this and what, what, what was that well my favorite show we ever did was in uh minneapolis because the in the daytime it was a strip club so uh we come in for the sound check and it's like these chicks are on the bar dancing and topless it's like well this place is cool so the venues were uh not traditional all the time especially when you get to smaller like when you know when you're when you're on tour you're in the beginning you're basically staying at people's houses sleeping on the couch and sit and uh, playing at some super funky places and sometimes all you're looking to do is get enough money for gas to get to the next town and there's a long ways between let's say your gig in Seattle and your next gig in let's say uh, Nebraska or uh, Maybe you got a, a gig in Milwaukee. So how are you going to get from Seattle to Milwaukee? Well, where are you going to play to make gas money to get to the next place? So this is sort of like, you know, in the beginning, uh, it's rough. And any of these bands, uh, you know, we didn't exist in a vacuum. There were other really great bands at that time. Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, X, Germs. Uh, I'm forgetting people and I apologize. Adolescents. I mean, the list is a mile long. We didn't exist in a, a vacuum. There were other groups and we all inspired each other and we were happy to play with each other and, you know, get ideas and, and inspiration from each other. But it was, was it just amazing? You know, I mean, as, as it got better on the road, I mean, as, as you got past that, that first level, when you started getting a recognizable name. It started playing better gigs, uh, better deli tray in the, uh, you know, sound check, uh, maybe uh, improved accommodations, you know, this is, uh, you know, you've made it, right, when uh, when, when you get, uh, co- you know, cold cuts backstage. It's all about cold cuts. Yeah. It's a, we were, JP, it was so funny, we were at, uh, my friend opened for Artie Lang at, at Universal, and he, it was, Artie Lang was sober, and he goes, uh, backstage, hey, you want some cold cuts? And my one friend, Ed, thought he's like, hey, you want some cocaine? <laughs> we're like, what? I thought you were sober. 
He's like, what? They're cold cuts. <laughs> so so you, you play punk for those years, and then why'd you leave the Circle Jerks? It got to a certain point where it was like crunch time for me. Uh, did it for you know three years. Now it's the bar exam. You know, so I've been doing. I'm going to law school the now, whole time. Now is it is it hard? To, okay, so you're going to law school, but you're this punk star. Now now it's it's not. It's like if someone said, hey, he's going to law school, a law school, and he's a waiter. He's going to law school, and he's a janitor. He's going to law school, and he sings in a ABBA cover band. But you're. I mean, did people know in law school that you were this this punk star? Yeah. Yeah, and they would How come they to the show. You? They they would love to come to the shows, and it was fun to see. They would dress like in a white T-shirt, so they still stood out, even though they wanted to blend in. But uh, in a lot of cases, they were just you know looking to have a good time and drink some beers and party. And it was a lot of laughs. That that you know we were only getting paid a lot of money, so it's either we're getting paid in females or laughter because it wasn't uh, wasn't ultra lucrative. So we we're having a great time. And of course, there was a you know the duality and the ironies were replete uh first year i remember studying uh some of the old english law around the concept of uh uh accomplice liability which is like you know a guy goes into a bank robs the bank uh accidentally you know or unintentionally uh things get a little crazy and someone gets killed like the uh security guy draws his gun uh and the bank robber shoots the security guy now the question is is, is the person that's driving the getaway car responsible for the murder? We know that the guy that shot the security guard's responsible, but what about the guy that's driving the, secu- the uh, getaway car? So those kind of uh, somewhat arcane, nuanced concepts. As I'm studying that, I get this knock at the door, and it's these uh, punks that know where I live, and they've basically just like uh, beat someone up and stole, took his money. And now they're looking to hide out at my house to uh, uh, avoid the police, which is like, I mean, the very page of the book that I'm studying is, you know, accessory before the fact, accessory after the fact, accomplice liability. And I'm basically harboring fugitives. So it was a, a, an unusual duality, you know, on both sides. But, you know, I accredit my success with the Circle Jerks to law school and I uh, credit uh, my success in law school to the Circle Jerks. So. so was it was it hard? I mean, I know it wasn't lucrative, as you said, it wasn't lucrative doing the, the gigs, but it's that it's that live reaction of a show. Was it hard to leave that to start doing law? I mean, I mean, how, and how did that? How did you make that transition? At first, I thought uh, I had set the table to become an entertainment lawyer, and uh, you know, I had friends in the in the music industry and. Uh, uh, people that would you know trusted me that were other you know fellow musicians but uh, ultimately I, I came to find that it was not it wasn't what I thought it might be which so much of uh, grad school is not you know and professions are not what you you know w- wish or think or it wasn't like you know Perry Mason or whatever I had grown up with so it turned out it wasn't as um, wasn't all I thought it was, so I kind of backed away from that. But things evolved, and I found uh, a more comfort in, the, in in business law, and th- th- that was more straightforward and uh, felt better, so I did that. Now, when you play drums now, do you use your law background and sit there and go, if you wanted to get a record deal, would you be a, a, a pain in the ass saying, I'm going to get this deal? with Because you understand the lingo. I'm sure when you were younger, even though you're in law school, record executives go, hey, uh, here's a deal. This, this, this. What, how would you handle it now? My perspective today, and, and I think friends uh, that, you know, anybody that even writes me on Facebook or whatever, it's always one of immense gratitude. I kind of pride myself on being accessible. Uh, in those days, maybe because of the, you know, what I was doing and the success I was having in a couple of different areas, it might have uh, gone to my head a little bit too much. And uh, I'm not that person anymore. Life has, uh, you know, taught me. And uh, so... I pride myself now on being more humble. And so any chance to play, I'm grateful for. Any uh, people that I meet, I start off, you know, very open toward them and glad to meet them and um, tons of stuff to learn, stuff to share. It's just a much nicer way to integrate, you know, 
in the universe. Well, after after it circles, right? So you played for Bear Religion for a little bit. Yes. Now, 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 were you a lawyer at the time? And how did you yeah. juggle those two? How does how does that work? Uh, you know, I'm not the only one. You know, you mentioned Bad Religion. The lead singer, I think, is a professor at UCLA of anthropology, and he's managing quite well to you know do that. And uh, for people that do that, and I know that there's a veterinarian that's a a, uh, a punk rock person, and there's a dentist that was in a band called The Last. So. Uh, you know, we are who we are. We have different uh, – we don't want to be defined by any one thing. I mean, I like to scuba dive. I, you know, I like to surf. I'm not a pro scuba diver or surfer, but, you know, each person's an individual. And each person's got their story. If you, uh, you know, take the time and listen and get to know someone over a beer or whatever, everyone's got passions. And, and, and they're not necessarily defined by just the one particular thing that they, that they are known for or that they do. But would you tour with them? I mean, because that does, how does that, does that interfere with your law practice? I've always tried to make it work. I've been fortunate. I've backed away from the music for a while. Now I'm getting a lot more into it because I've had uh, been super fortunate with business and law. And uh, so now I have more time and it, uh, I'm at a stage in my life where I could devote more time to music. And I've been ultra, ultra thankful for everyone at the various drum companies like DW and Sabian Cymbals and Luet Microphones and Remo Drumheads and Toka Percussion. All of them have opened their arms and welcomed me and uh, made me uh, an endorsee of their products. And so it's uh, great to come back and, and be uh, welcomed so warmly. Do the, when, when you get when you're an endorsee, do, do they pay you or do they just give you gear? A combination of both. Can you get me T-shirts? I, I, oh, absolutely. I, I want some. I want some. And, and they, these guys would like T-shirts too, especially JP. We all want. I'm joking. Uh, I, I'm trying I to get a sponsorship at the Body Shop on Sunset and get some some. <laughs> you can get strippers in there. Next yeah. time, you, next time you do the show, you can make some strippers. Exactly. In. Perfect, JP. Before you move, yeah. So, so now I need your house. You have a beautiful house. I heard. And now you have a recording studio in it. Uh, we got a studio there, and it's been so much fun that. Uh, I'm thinking even right back somewhere in this neighborhood, maybe expanding because it's been such an incredible pleasure and uh, scaling that studio back and, and getting a big one. I know the industry's going through real tough times and there's a lot of studios that uh, have, uh, you know, had past uh, greatness and now are having a hard time because of changes in the industry. And it seems like now might be an opportune time to actually pick up a larger studio and, and do some cool things. So you have a recording studio in your house. So, and you, you have people come over and jam. Who are some of the people you come over? I mean, who, who do you sit there and go, do you just sit there and, on, on a, let's say on a Saturday, like today, you get home from recording Cooper Talk and you're like, yeah, I'm not doing anything. Hey, I'm going to call. Do you just do, I mean, who do you call? Who do you call jam with you? It's not always, uh, it would not be so uh, impromptu like that because the folks that I like uh, to jam with uh, normally have schedules. But tomorrow, for example, Chuck from Black Flag is going to come over. We've been jamming. And uh, have a great time. He's written some pretty incredible songs that are not really punk, but they uh, it's Chuck. So whatever Chuck's do is, is always going to be Chuck. And uh, so I'm jamming with Chuck. But I've had, you know, fabulous players, mostly drummers, just but, other buddies like Glenn Sobel, Alice uh, Cooper's drummer. Uh, one of the best drummers I know has uh, been over a bunch of times you know, jam and... Well, how do you do it when... The, do you have two drum sets? Because you're both drummers. Uh, I do. I have a, a Latin kit and uh, of uh, timbales and congas and bongos and all kinds of cowbells. And so we, we can rock out and then in the middle of it, like, we can switch places. And so we do these uh, kind of like uh, sort of semi-spiritual uh, rhythm beat type uh, jams. But... Uh, with a lot of these guys, actually, I sort of just sit back and awe and watch because, uh, you know, fortunately, going back to Lucky Strike Live, the uh, uh, Wednesday event and other things, I'm, you know, so many great players out there and we all vibe off of each other. So I, I'm just as happy being in the audience as I am playing when it comes to some of these people and, and what their skills and the level they've achieved and the, the life that they've dedicated to this and the things that they're able to do. It's... Uh, Awesome and inspirational. Are you still writing music? Are you still trying to produce content, or, or do you just like to play covers? Or what? What makes what makes your day when it comes to your musician musicianship? That's a great question. Well, I, I think probably a little bit of both. Um, 
It's interesting. Uh, I keep referencing the Wednesday Night Jam, which I probably got thrown out of. But You didn't get uh, thrown out. Come on. So you, so you screwed up one Ramon song. I watch... Uh, Sometimes I start off like, okay, what is this song note for note? How did the original song get played? You could take a song like uh, Cherry Bomb uh, by The Runaways. And then uh, now, okay, let's see. uh, They're going to do Cherry Bomb, but Matt's going to play drums. What is Matt going to do with that? We all know how the original song is played. Where is he going to take it? Is he going to replicate it note for note like the way when I did ACDC? I just wanted to play it exactly note for note the way it was recorded. Or is he going to add his own thing? And that adding my own thing is how I got into trouble last Wednesday night. I wanted to show the world how uh, Buddy Rich would have played the Ramones. And unfortunately... Uh, Buddy Rich wouldn't have played the Ramones. He wouldn't have played the Ramones. He would have said, that shit's not music. You would have got smacked in the face. If exactly. You're in the movie, if you're in the movie Whiplash, they would have hit you. Would, oh, God. I love that thrown... movie. Did you, did you like I it? I hated that movie. You hated that movie. I hated I that movie. I thought it was great. I thought it was I... much better than uh, Birdman. I thought Birdman sucked. The reason I could not stand, couldn't wait to turn Whiplash off was because I've been blessed with inspiring teachers. And that teacher, if I would have had the misfortune of having him, was was not inspirational. He was a very punishing person, uh, throwing symbols like they were Frisbees at the the poor guy. But... uh, I understand what it's like to practice hard. I understand that, uh, you know, some of the points of the movie, but uh, the really the question that's underlying that is what does it take to bring out the best in another person? And to use a carrot or to use a stick or and uh, that that teacher was uh, or, of course, was a fictionalized character. Maybe it was based on somebody real, but it was a person that was very into punishing in order to extract uh, excellence. But I, I don't believe that. Personally, that that's how excellence is squeezed out of a human. What did it take you to bring out the best in you when you got behind the drums? Oh, females, like we've been saying. That's it. Pretty much. You yeah, well, I mean, the hotter the babe, the better I play. And, you know, the better the hotter the audience, female. But that was then. Now, uh, that never hurts. That, that you know, I'm still hardwired for that. But, um, you know... The players that I'm getting to know and, and, and the sponsors that are behind me, I just want to keep getting better and keep playing better. It's all about the instrument. And uh, so I'm motivated just to do well, play well, achieve more, learn more, uh, new new things, always with an idea toward restraint, which is not my calling card. So I have to keep that in my mind. And tasteful, which again is not a, a move that comes easily to me. Some drummers like, let's say Ringo or Charlie Watts are eminently tasteful and they play just what's needed and no more. My tendency is to go overboard and I have to restrain that, but there's constantly a learning and a challenging and it's a never ending. It's an infinite instrument. So there's there, no one ever reaches the pinnacle of the mountain where they know everything about the drums. There's always an infinite amount more to learn. So that's what keeps me in the game. I got a question for you. I actually, I read a very interesting article uh, last week that said how classic rock is dying because no one plays classic rock anymore. Punk rock is something that it's always going to be around. And it's a matter of because it has that feeling of, you know, the outsider feel. What is that for you? Do you, do you have like young kids who want to punk rock send you messages? Because you were on the forefront of punk and you were in a very, I mean, you're a punk rock star. I mean, where classic rock, you know, The Who is great. But 10 years from now, kids are going to think of The Who is on a DSW shoe commercial or CSI Miami or whatever the fuck it is. For you, what's it like? Because you were on, do you, do you get people and, and do you think punk will live on forever? Wow, it's an awesome question. Uh, I'm, you know, my crystal ball has has always been uh, very unreliable, and I, frankly, I'd be disingenuous, and I'd be lying if I looked you in the eye and told you, 20 years ago, that we'd be here having an interview discussing punk music, because frankly. Uh, a lot of me thought it was a hula hoop. It was a pet rock. It was going to be around in the 80s. It was a music that in certain ways was basic as far as its music structure, and it didn't have a lot of longevity. So uh, I, I want to be honest and say I didn't think that it would last as long as it did. Uh, do people, young people write? Yeah, and it's amazing. It's amazing to hear from people that are 13 and 14 years old, uh, most often young drummers that are inspired by that. But I suppose... 
uh, looking and thinking historically, uh, any music that had a rebellious overtone has always touched a chord with people that are at an age where their hormones are raging and they're 14 to let's say 18. I'm does not limited to that, but it's a feeling of, uh, uh, rebelling against whether it's parents, authority. And so, uh, I mean, the Beatles were, were considered rebellious music. Elvis was rebellious music at the time. And, uh, uh, w- what gets more rebellious than than punk? Well, you know, I've heard some some stuff that uh, I don't even know the names of some of it, but it also has that uh, extreme element. That Rihanna, she's she's <laughs> uh, like, and Rihanna was on the tip of my tongue. When you think about like, uh, you know, wanting to like, uh, you know, take a razor blade and slit your wrist, it's d- definitely that Rihanna. But you'd hook up with her. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we have a few minutes left. You, you have to tell me your best story either being with a great house in the hills or being a rock star you gotta tell me your best story we have give me a two minute story wow my best none of my best stories are uh are um you know g-rated but you know you, you, you've you, said you, fuck so many times yeah. I'm, I'm getting I said the it idea three times. well uh i remember saying to greg hetson uh once uh remember like three years ago we went to this chick's house and uh you know, she was kind of hot, and uh, for some reason you fell asleep, which was kind of weird. And he goes, yeah, I remember that. And I go, well, I don't know if you know it or not, but, you know, as soon as you, like, fell asleep, uh, basically I, you know, I boned this chick, you know. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, I know. And I thought, wait a second, what do you mean you know? And uh, I go, you know, it was kind of crazy that night, I said to him, because – I fell asleep, you know, because I basically kind of hit it and then, you know, crashed. But then I woke up like in the middle of the night. And I thought, you know what? This chick's pretty hot. You know what? Why not go for it again? You know, why not? And uh, so I hit it a second time. And he goes, yeah, I know. Now I'm like, what do you mean you know? You were asleep the first time. You were, you were, you were out the whole night. He goes, you know why you woke up the second time? I go, no. He goes. Because it was me f- coming out of her. <laughs> I thought that was so twisted. I thought that was so wrong. <laughs> we just tag teamed this chick, and I was oblivious to it for three years. <laughs> now, hey, people, just know that's a uh, take the headphones off and laugh because I don't want to laugh and hear myself laughing because that's a funny story. So, but no, 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 your house though, it's a beautiful house. Now, do you have, you have a lot of parties? We have parties there. I got, I was able to get, uh, after labor of love, uh, a place in the hills and, uh, going back to what I had shared before, I'm pretty you know open towards it. So when we had the big fight last week at the last minute, you know what, why don't we buy that fight that Pacquiao, uh, uh, Mayweather fight, and then all of a sudden we had, lo and behold, about 40 people there because everyone wanted to see the fight. And I love having friends over and sharing that, you know, because it's like uh, it's a great space. We're coming over tomorrow to watch you jam. You know, I'm glad you said that. This is a good, <laughs> this is a good thing to end this song on. This whole show, we're in the studio. We record group sex, like I told you, with the all written on the spot because of these two crazy hot babes that are like they're like along we said you know what these chicks are so hot let's let them sing on this album i mean everything's basically being written as right you know and uh we never had any lyrics for the song all we had was the words group sex the chorus a week later keith morris goes into the studio which was brilliant with this ad for a a place in the hills ironically located right by my house a place called the a-frame where they would have on the weekend sex parties so he reads an ad from a swinger magazine for the a-frame where they have sex parties and uh at the end of the ad it says what phone number to call to book a reservation at the a-frame to join the swinger party and at the last minute i decide you know what let's do another take on just the phone number and say my home number and so that that was my old home number on that album so we were getting phone calls constantly from literally all over the world like somebody from siberia called me once named the imperialist pig it was unbelievable the phone calls we'd get now this is while studying for law school people would love to come to my house just to like pick up the phone because we're getting calls from everywhere that is the way to to end the show uh we have a minute left give all your info your your twitter your website 
Twitter's out there, and I don't know what it is, but I have that. I guess it's Lucky Lara. I know I've got a website, uh, www.luckylara.com. Uh, you you got to update the, the about because when you push about on your website, it gives all your sponsors. It doesn't talk about you. We need a bio okay. page to right. find out about you. I'm going to tell that. Did you hear that, Alexa? We're going to tell Alexa exactly. to do that. Okay, well, I am launching like this week or next week a, a series called the Hardcore Drum Sessions. So those are going to be about 11 different lessons that take you from 1 to 11. And by the time you watch all 11 of them, you're either bored as shit or you're a better drummer. So I'm excited about that. Um Facebook, you can always Lucky Lair. I'm on Facebook. Well, give it up. Thank you, Lucky, for coming on the show. Okay. And, and people follow me at Cooper Talk. It's at Cooper Talk. Also, my website, CooperTalk.net. I have over 370 episodes. Send me an email, Cooper at CooperTalk.net. I'll respond. I swear to God. Also, my new, my new, my new love is my new website, StopTheSalt.com. It's my new low-sodium cookbook. As you guys know, when I get out of the hospital with congestive heart failure, I changed my life around. My doctor said I'll live till I'm 90. Joanne's not happy about that. She wanted me dead at 75, but I don't have wife insurance, so she's screwed. But go to stopthesalt.com and I'll buy the book. It, it's it's a very it's 120 recipes. It's very easy. I'll sign it for you if you want it, and it's uh, just great stuff. And so, don't eat chopped liver. Exactly. I like chopped liver, but I can't eat it. I like chopped liver. Killed more Jews than Hitler. <laughs> Give it up for Lucky Lair. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water. Eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I'll be back next week. Keep listening and have a wonderful weekend.